Well, we continue, of course, with our study of Revelation, which we began a couple of weeks ago. And because we just began it, we're still in chapter 1, looking at verses 9 to 20, which I just read for you. And in this section, of course, John hears a voice, turns around and sees this vision of Jesus behind him. And we're going to get into all that. But before we get to the main point of our study, I have two side issues to address. One is correcting a mistake that I've made several times in preaching over the last six or seven years. And the other is an observation about the incompatibility of the description of... an incompatibility between the description of Jesus in our passage and the standard Reformed perspective on the application of the second commandment to images of Jesus. So those are two side issues. Neither of those is the main point of the text in front of us this morning. But both of these are, are important enough that I'm going to address them because both of them are relevant to our text this morning and both of, the, both of them will help shape our thinking on two important matters. So these side issues will take up more than a few minutes of our time. But I'm going to clear these out of the way in the first half of our sermon this morning. And then we'll move on to the main point of the passage in the second half of our sermon this morning. Alright, so let's, let's begin first then with a correction of an error that I've repeated several times over the years. And I sheepishly, sheepishly realized this week that I've been wrong every time that I've made this error. I've wrongly attributed a perspective to a Seventh-day Adventist scholar named Samuel Bakioki which he does not actually hold. So I don't know if I had read through his book many years ago and misread him and thought that someone he quoted was his quote, or I don't know if I read his quote secondhand in someone else's work and then just failed to do the due diligence to verify it myself, what he said. But in any case... I told you most recently, and I've said it several times in my preaching ministry, but I told you most recently when I was preaching on John chapter 20, verses 24 to 29, that, quote, quoting me, even the Seventh-day Adventist scholar Samuel Bakioki, in his seminal work from Sabbath to Sunday, concedes that the phrase, the Lord's Day, as it appears in Revelation, refers to Sunday, end quote. That is just fundamentally incorrect. Samuel Bakioki does not hold that position. Completely against what I have told you before, Bakioki actually says, the equation, quote, the equation of Sunday with the expression Lord's Day is based not on internal evidences of the book of Revelation or on the rest of the New Testament, but basically on three second century patristic testimonies, namely the Didache, Ignatius' epistle to the Magnesians and the Gospel of Peter. End quote. And Bakioki goes on to argue that Sunday was not already designated the Lord's Day by the end of the first century when Revelation was written, but rather that the name arose at a slightly later period. So I've entirely misquoted and misrepresented Samuel Bakioki's perspective to you. And I apologize for this error. Again, I'm not sure, not sure even where I got the idea that he said that. But I've been, saying, I've been repeating that error for years. And I feel responsible to clear that up. That said, 
it doesn't fundamentally change whatever Samuel Bakayoki's perspective is or not. It, in, in some sense, it's neither here nor there. Um, it doesn't fundamentally, this error that I've made doesn't fundamentally change the way that we should understand the phrase, the Lord's Day, as it appears here in our passage in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10. As I said in the same sermon in which I most recently misquoted Bakayoki, the first two appearances of Jesus to his disciples recorded by the Apostle John in John's Gospel were both Sundays. And the New Testament scriptures do place great emphasis on Sundays. So evidently did the Apostle, since we know from historical study that the early Christians uniformly started meeting on Sundays. In Revelation 1.10, the passage before us today, the Apostle John mentions a day called the Lord's Day. And this phrase, as it appears here in Revelation, really does refer to Sunday. There's good, lots of good historic evidence for that, even if Bakioki disagrees. The reason for this biblical emphasis and this apostolic emphasis is that Sunday is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. It is the day that we are told that He appeared to His disciples after the resurrection on more than one occasion. And it is the day that He poured out His Holy Spirit, Pentecost Sunday. In view of all this data, it's indisputably clear, at least, that the apostles did understand it to be the case that we should worship together on Sundays, since that is what they uniformly taught all of the first century churches, which they planted. But more than that, by inference, we must conclude that the apostles understood worship on Sundays the Lord's days, to be the new covenant way of keeping the fourth commandment. Since both Jesus and the apostles continually teach the abiding validity of the Ten Commandments, and yet they are conspicuously ambivalent at best, and possibly even dismissive at points, depending on how you understand certain texts, either ambivalent or even dismissive about the importance of observing the Jewish Seventh-day Sabbath in the New Covenant. So you could look at passages like Colossians 2, Romans 14, etc. If there is a special day in the week, a special day of the week in the minds of the apostles and the inspired New Testament authors, it is certainly Sunday. So when John says the Lord's Day in Revelation 1.10, we should understand it as referring to Sunday. As even, don't miss it, even in, even in spite of my clarification, as I quoted you this morning, even Bakayoki acknowledges that Christians did understand the Lord's Day to refer to Sunday, at least from as early as the second century, even by Bakayoki's own admission. And many, including myself, believe that Christians already did, even at the end of the first century when Revelation was written, and that Sunday is in fact the day that John was referring to. We just shouldn't attribute that particular perspective to Bakayoki himself. Alright? As I've wrongly done on several occasions over the last six or seven years. So that's the first side issue in our text this morning. Sunday, the Lord's Day does mean Sunday, but Bakayoki doesn't think so. And I wrongly told you that he did. Alright? First side issue. The second side issue is this. An observation about the incompatibility between... The description of Jesus in our passage 
and the majority Reformed perspective about the application of the second commandment to images of Jesus. As I just mentioned a moment ago, the Reformed tradition believes in the abiding validity of the Ten Commandments, even for saints in the New Covenant, including the Second Commandment, which says this, Exodus 24-6, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, the Westminster Larger Catechism, which is part of the Westminster Standards, which is basically the gold standard in terms of a a mainstream Reformed perspective, explains in question 109 what this second commandment forbids in terms of images of Jesus. Quote, The making any representation of God of all or of any of the three persons, either inwardly in our mind or outwardly in any kind of image or likeness of any creature whatsoever. Now, did you notice that it forbids the making of an image of any person of the Trinity in our minds? Now I ask you, How are we supposed to refrain from making an image of Jesus this morning in our minds when we read in Revelation 1, 13-16 of one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Contrary to the Westminster standards, I believe, along with a minority, a minority in the Reformed tradition, that it is quite clear that John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, intended for us to have an image in our minds of the second person of the Trinity as we read Revelation 1, since he uses such graphic language to describe how he saw him. The prohibition of the second commandment is to be understood in terms of the qualifier. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God does not want us to conceive of Him apart from how He has revealed Himself. Such that we end up worshipping a figment of our imagination instead of He Himself. And thereby provoke God to jealousy. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verses 15 to 19 is helpful to us in understanding this paradigm for interpreting the second commandment. It says... Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure 
the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. According to Deuteronomy 4, what God does not want us to do is to imagine a form and to attribute a form when we saw none and have been given none and thereby to worship a figment of our imagination. But to refuse to worship God as He has revealed Himself, in whatever form He has revealed Himself, is impiety. And to refrain from conceiving of God in our minds as He has revealed Himself, is an attempt to be wiser than God. So when God tells us that He appeared in a cloud over the tent of meeting, in the Old Covenant times, we may and we must necessarily imagine the cloud. When He tells us that the Spirit descended upon Jesus at His baptism in the form of a dove, we may and we must necessarily imagine the dove. And when John tells us here in Revelation that the Son appeared as one like a Son of Man, we may and we must necessarily imagine this vision that He gives us. To do so is natural and inevitable if what we read and hear is intelligible to us. You cannot possibly read graphic and visual language and understand it and at the same time not have an image in your mind. That is not possible. So, to have an image in your mind is manifestly intended by God in passages such as this, since He uses such graphic descriptions of Himself at various places in Holy Scripture and expects hearers and readers to understand what is written. All Christians ought to agree that any picture or statue of God is not God Himself. Right? That's not, that should not be a controversial point even if it conforms to the graphic and visual language of Scripture used to describe persons of the Trinity. So if someone were to draw a picture of a dove descending upon a man, should we worship that picture which is not God? Obviously not. Plainly, right? So as Exodus 20 says of images and representations of God, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. That use of images, then, is certainly out of bounds and prohibited by the Second Commandment. So people bowing in front of statues and pictures and whatnot is clearly idolatry, out of bounds. That's not God. Good Christians may disagree, however, about whether or not it is permissible at all to draw or to sculpt such self-revealed images of God for illustrative purposes, such as a picture in a children's book of, for example, the baptism of Jesus with the Spirit descending in the form of a dove. Some may argue that such a use is tempting idolatry because we will be tempted to worship such an image. Or some people may argue that the very act of doing so is idolatry itself 
as Exodus 20 forbids the making of images. Others would argue that it's not really any different than conceiving of God as He has revealed Himself in graphic visual languages, in graphic visual language in the Scripture. It's not any different to conceive of Him in our minds or to write something or draw something down for illustrative purposes, and that that sort of use has a proper and legitimate uh, use for the people of God for the purposes of illustration and instruction. I'm not trying to resolve that debate this morning, but I think it's worth pointing out as we go through that it is abundantly clear that the Westminster Larger Catechism has overstated the case, at least, in terms of prohibiting the making of any representation of God of all or of any three persons inwardly in our mind. As passages such as Revelation actually invite and necessitate that we do so. So those are the two side issues that I thought important to address prior to our sermon this morning, uh, or I guess as part of our sermon this morning. With those out of the way, let's, let's move to the main point of our text this morning. It wasn't written to instruct us about whether Sunday is the Lord's Day or not. It wasn't written to instruct us about whether the Westminster Larger Catechism was correct or not, and to understand where we, where we sit in terms of historical theology. That's not why this passage was written. With those two things out of the way, let's get to why this passage was written. And here's the big idea of this passage this morning. Christians should not fear because the glorified Christ holds the church in His hand and is in the midst of His church. Let us approach this main idea gradually, however, starting with this observation. The Apostle John is a brother and partner in tribulation and the kingdom. Look at verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. John is a brother and a partner in the tribulation that other Christians are experiencing. Were they suffering under the reign of Domitian, who, as we talked about last week, was cruel and monstrous in his treatment, not just of Christians, but of many Roman citizens? Was John a, John a partner and a brother to the other Christians who were suffering under Domitian's reign? Yes! After all, John writes Revelation from exile on the island of Patmos, which was a prison colony for those who were not politically expedient to execute, and yet who the Roman Empire did not want around. So John is on Patmos. And the isolation, at least, itself was a punishment. Remember, he couldn't make a Zoom call. He couldn't message his buddies on WhatsApp. He was, he was very much isolated there. And that itself was a punishment. And some scholars argue that the prisoners on Patmos had to do hard labor while they were in exile. And John here, by this time, is an old man. By the way... Tertullian tells us that they tried to boil John in a pot of oil prior to this, and he just reclined as if he was in a bathtub, <laughs> and that the Lord miraculously spared him, and then they exiled him on Patmos. It's not in the Bible, so it's not, it's not infallibly true. It's possible that that comes down to us wrongly and inaccurately. But look at everything we do read in the Bible. It's also not 
implausible to me that that actually did happen. So the Romans decide, well, I guess we can't boil this guy. Let's send him to Patmos. So John is an old man by this time on the island of Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. However, John is not merely a brother and a partner in tribulation, but he is also a brother and a partner in the kingdom. Sunday rolls around again and again in the weekly cycle. And John is found again and again in the Spirit. As we saw last week in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. And so here is John separated from his brothers and sisters in Christ in some sense, and yet one with them. Sunday by Sunday, part of that same body, drinking of that same Holy Spirit. As the saints gather on the mainland for worship, here is John in fellowship with God and with them spiritually through the Holy Spirit. By that Spirit, John is not just a brother and partner in tribulation, But like the rest of the saints, he has been loved and freed from his sins and made to partake of Christ's kingdom, as Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6 puts it. So John is, therefore, because he is in tribulation and is a brother and a partner with the other Christians in tribulation, and yet because he is also a brother and a partner with them in the kingdom, John is, therefore, patiently enduring Look at that phrase right after in verse 9. Brother and partner in the tribulation in the kingdom and the patient endurance. John is suffering now like all the Christians. But like all the Christians, he is a dual citizen. Both of Rome and of Christ's everlasting kingdom. And he knows that Rome one day will fall. That one day either Jesus will come back Or his body will die and all of these temporal sufferings will be over. And that this is not the final word and this is not the ultimate fate of John. To be isolated on some island, suffering in body and in mind and in spirit. John knows that one day, because of Christ Jesus and his coming kingdom, all of these sufferings will be over. So what's he doing? He's patiently enduring. Like all the other Christians are patiently Enduring. Rome will fall, but the kingdom of Christ will stand. And so everything that we're going through will be temporary. This is the brotherhood and partnership that all we Christians have with one another. We have the brotherhood and the partnership of tribulation. We're all going through stuff. And yet we also have the brotherhood and the partnership of Christ's kingdom. Which means, therefore, that we have the brotherhood and the partnership of patient endurance. Patiently enduring what we're going through. And as John patiently endures, the glorified Christ appears to him. As we saw last week, Revelation gives us a portrait of the Lamb of God. That that particular title is used over and over and over and over and over again in the book of Revelation. The Lamb of God. The Lamb. But in Revelation, 
He is no longer in a lowly state. But as the resurrected and ascended and victorious Lamb, He is also now manifestly glorious. The Lamb is also a lion before whom all the nations tremble. The prophet Isaiah says in chapter 53, He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him and no beauty that we should desire Him. Note that it says, He had. He had. Past tense. For He has now. I saw one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. What it means when it says in Isaiah 53 that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. What it means is if there were two teams, so to speak, and two team captains, and Jesus was the captain of one team and someone else was the captain of another team, and the question was put to you, which team would you like to be on? If you didn't know anything about Jesus, you would have a 50-50 chance of choosing his team. Because he just looked like a normal guy. Maybe you'd go on his team, maybe you'd go on another guy's team. He just looked like a normal guy. That's what it means when it says in Isaiah 53. It means he didn't show up looking like The Rock, Dwayne Johnson. It means that, it means that he didn't show up looking like handsome, like Brad Pitt or whoever else. It means that he just looked like a normal guy. And that that wasn't the particular appeal of Jesus in his first advent. But I tell you what, if two teams were lined up now, and I saw one like a son of man, with eyes of fire and so on and so forth, I'm going to go on that guy's team. What form and what majesty that we should look at Him now. What beauty that we should desire Him. And of course, this is in apocalyptic imagery. And so, we we shouldn't necessarily expect that when we open our eyes after we breathe our last, that we literally see Jesus literally with a sword in His mouth. That's not what this means. But it's giving us graphic and visual imagery in keeping with the apocalyptic imagery of the whole book, of the glory and the power of the resurrected and the ascended Christ, and what form and what majesty there is to Him now in His glorified state. As we sing so often in that beloved hymn, the sands of time are sinking. The King there in His beauty, without a veil is seen. It were a well-spent journey Those seven deaths lay between. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze on glory, but on my King of grace. 
not on the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. This glorious figure is called here in Revelation 1, one like a son of man. Hearkening back to Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I'm going to read you a couple of excerpts from that chapter. First, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. One like a son of man does not merely mean a human. No, it does mean that. When John uses the phrase, one like a son of man in Revelation 1, he is alluding back to this vision in Daniel 7 of one like a son of man who is given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Jesus is therefore presented to us in Revelation 1.13 as the human Messiah, but the human Messiah. Not just human, but Messiah. Prophesied by Daniel, who would be exalted above his brothers as the king of all peoples, nations, and languages. You ever notice in the Gospels how often Jesus calls himself the Son of Man? And you might wonder, why does he use that phrase and make himself seem so lowly? Why doesn't he call himself the Son of God? It's because he also is co-opting this title. Claiming it as being his own. I am the messianic figure of Daniel chapter 7. I am the Son of Man who will be given an everlasting dominion, kingdom, and glory that all people should serve me. This is why Jesus refers to Himself as the Son of Man. And this is what John is telling us in Revelation 1. Jesus is that messianic figure, that Messiah of Daniel chapter 7. And yet Daniel 7 contains even more imagery relevant to our study of Revelation 1. Listen to verses 9 and 10 of Daniel 7. And pay careful attention to the imagery here. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. In Daniel 7, one like a son of man comes before God, who is called the Ancient of Days. And this son of man receives a kingdom from the Ancient of Days. But note that in Daniel chapter 7, the Ancient of Days is described as having hair white like wool. Sitting on a throne of fire which rests upon wheels of fire. 
and that an innumerable number serve him. And he opens a book and judges the world. Christ Jesus is presented to us in Revelation 1 as one whom the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet, or the wheels of his throne, were like burnished bronze. In Revelation 7, there is a number so large that no one can count standing before his throne. And in Revelation 20, he opens the book and judges the world. Using the keys of death and Hades that he's said to possess here in Revelation chapter 1. Locking some into death and Hades, like a jailer locks a prisoner into a cell, but unlocking the door for others to leave death and Hades. Christ Jesus is presented to us in Revelation then as both the human Messiah and as the divine person, the Ancient of Days. He is the God-man. That second person of the Trinity who was in the beginning with God and was God. As John puts it in the prologue to his Gospel. And yet became flesh and dwelt among us. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John is drawing heavily from Daniel 7 here in Revelation 1. This introduction to the book of Revelation. In order to make it clear to us that what we are about to read in what follows in the subsequent 21 chapters of Revelation is the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. The human Messiah shall receive a kingdom and the Ancient of Days shall open a book and judge the earth. What is new revelation though is that one like a son of man is the ancient of days. That everything that Daniel saw in his vision recorded for us in chapter 7 of his prophecy is to be fulfilled in and through Christ Jesus. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, all the promises of God find their yes in Him. Now John tells us that when I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead. Which means that perhaps He fainted or was paralyzed with fear. Just fell down and instead of fight or flight, had a freeze response and was just disabled before this glorious Christ. Whether he fainted, whether he was paralyzed with fear, he was on the ground with the ability and capacity of a dead man. Here is the disciple who Jesus loved. One who had been so intimate and familiar with Jesus in his humiliation, in the concealed glory of his first advent. 
one of Jesus' best earthly friends. Utterly overcome by the manifestation of Christ's glory as he beholds Jesus in his exaltation. How much more then will those who have no familiarity with Jesus, or worse, those who are his enemies, how much more will they be utterly overcome when they behold the revealed, manifest, patent glory, patently obvious glory of Christ at the end of all things? As Revelation 1 verse 7 says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. And as chapter 6, verses 16 and 17 puts it, They will call to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? My friends, are you prepared for that day? Whether you believe it or not, as I said last week, you will see Jesus. You will see Jesus in His exalted glory. And if He is not on your side, you will call to the mountains and to the rocks to fall on you and to hide you from His gaze, from the wrath of the Lamb. But Jesus here tells John, His friend, the disciple whom Jesus loved, fear not. In verse 17, yes, Jesus is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, that is the A to Z, the everything of all human history and all reality who has overcome death and who has the keys to lock people into death and Hades and to unlock death and Hades to let them out. Yes, Jesus is this glorious, exalted one with all of this beauty and majesty now unveiled to us. But why would this, why would this be a comfort for John who has fallen at his feet as though dead? It is a comfort to him because of verses 12 to 16 and verse 20 paired together. This Jesus, this glorious Jesus was seen in verses 12 to 16 in the midst of seven golden lampstands and holding seven stars in his right hand. And in verse 20, Jesus says this, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, these seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the golden lampstands are the seven churches. In other words, however we understand angels, some people think it's the pastors of the church, some people think it's just figuratively representing the church, some people think that it's actually an angel that's assigned as like a guardian angel over the church. In some sense, it's, it's a bit of a moot point. 
In any case, the angels of the church is clearly our representatives of the church and represent them. So what, what Jesus is telling John is that Jesus holds the church in His hand and is in the midst of His church as He held the stars in His hand and was in the midst of the lampstand. Therefore, John need not fear because John is a brother and a partner not only in the tribulation that other Christians are experiencing, but John is a brother and partner in the kingdom. Which means he is a brother and partner in the church. And if Jesus holds the church in his hand and is in the midst of the church, then John need not faint at the sight of this glorious Christ. John need not faint with fear, nor be paralyzed with fear. Because Jesus is on John's side. Jesus is on the church's side. By extrapolation, no Christian needs to fear. Because the glorified Christ holds the church in His hand and is in the midst of the church. The one who is both the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days is our Jesus. The one who will open the books and judge the earth is our Jesus. The one who is the A to Z is our Jesus. The one who has the keys to lock up his enemies in death and Hades but to open the door for His loved ones is our Jesus. The glorious Christ portrayed for us in Revelation 1 and throughout the whole book of Revelation is ours. He is our Christ, our Jesus, our God. When we behold Christ in Revelation, because He is the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days, we behold God Himself who has the authority and the prerogative to govern our fate, and who, as we will see in the book of Revelation, does exactly that. And yes, He has made us brothers and partners in tribulation, but because He has also made us brothers and partners in Christ's kingdom, we have good cause to patiently endure Because our Christ, our God, the Almighty One, is unfolding everything according to His sovereign prerogative and plan. So as we share in a brotherhood of both tribulation and the kingdom, and therefore patient endurance, we need not fear. For we have been given a glorious vision of Christ. And He has assured us that He is ours and that we are His. He is in our midst. And He is holding us, His people, in His hand through it all.